Hey buddy, welcome back to Artificially Unintelligent. Today we're going to dive right into AI monitoring and what does it mean to monitor AI models and what are we going to do with the insights we get from AI monitoring. So let's dive right in. Okay, nice. So, what's up? Anything new happened this weekend? Mm, kind of. I'm diving into... Do you know Gradio? No, but you mentioned it. I, I was excited to hear what it's about. It's it's really sick. I really like it. So, I discovered it last week, I think. And they built... It's basically a library to create web interfaces for your machine learning um, algorithm. And it's it's not easy to use. It's easy to use if you know about web development because you know all the different components. But it's easier to get into than web development um, because it's like you have classes. It's really Pythonic. You have like classes for everything, and it's pretty easy to get a handle on. Mm. Yeah, cool. I, yeah. I I wanted to check it out. I need to maybe you can send the link or like I I yeah. look it up afterwards, but. They got bought by Hugging Face as well. So all ah, the cool. all the like interfaces you see on Hugging Face where you can try out the models, they are built with Gradio. Hmm. Ah, nice. Yeah, I have I like I mean I've used Hugging Face a bit, but I still I'm still like not the not the best advocate for it. I guess there are more people that use it uh, more than I do, I would say. I use it for everything. Like, yeah. Why would I program something myself when I just can use like a pre-trained algorithm? <laughs> I suppose, yeah, that's true. I don't know. Um, I'm an, I'm a late stage adopter to that, I guess. But yeah, uh... it's like I'm using it for like really well-known tasks where you need would need like a, a larger amount of training data to train it for like sentiment classification and stuff like that, which isn't like really high value. Mm. And but they are already the pre-trained models are pretty good. Okay, yeah, yeah that's cool. I will definitely um, check it out more. Like there's there's so many tools always. You know, like uh, the like are you like is one looking at uh, cloud computing at the moment or just MO opt tools or yeah, and it, like there's so many to kind of in the stack here. So I, I sometimes I just get overwhelmed and close every tab i have open basically <laughs> yeah i'm also hunting for like something to like streamline the gpu process because for me it's like i see a kind of challenge if i'm on only one gpu because i have to host the model i have to train the model and i have to run inference on the other models at the same time and I'm not sure what's the best approach, whether rather to use something like run AI to do like virtual GPUs and then split it up. Hmm. Or to use like multiple GPUs and exclusively use one for like inference and one for training. Was that the thing you were asking for in the, yeah. in the group chat? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a good question, but I guess, I guess it will kind of become clearer when you when you experiment with some of these tools and just like i mean the, the more tools that you are experienced with yeah for me paper space looks the best but i'm really annoyed they that i can't try it out 
because the even the CPUs, I would have to pay for it. And is I, it I like would... more of an enterprise tool, or what is it? It's oh, it's basically like Google Colab, um, but you can also instantly deploy the the models. Mm. I think in an API, I'm not sure, but you would have to get the membership immediately, and you can't even try out the tool. And this is, I, I would never pay for something without trying it first. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, I see what you mean. I was uh, the, looking into um, Mojo by Modular. Yeah. It's, um, um, I heard like Speedman's last podcast with. Uh, uh, I need to see the CEO, the founder of it. What's he called? Chris Latner, um, experienced programmer, and he was talking about like I think I think it's about um, kind of restructuring or creating a new C Python to make it even faster because they are making Mojo as a kind of sub set of Python because they really want to advocate like they're advocating the use of Python and the community and so on. And they see that it's the biggest kind of ML tool out yeah. there. And uh, I suppose they also had some clash with like, you know, and Julia ambassadors because they were like, yeah, but you can do the same thing for us. And, you know, let's just expand on Julia because it's already great. And I think, I think they kind of chose sides early on and were like, no, we just, we just like what Python like is doing. And maybe it's, I don't know if it has to do something with like the ease of integration or just uh, kind of targeting the biggest audience i guess it's the, just the, the customer base every every developer i know who's doing something in ai is in python why should it go for yeah. Julia? yeah but it was a, i mean it was a good like it, it looks quite cool it's obviously in like the earlier stages and i'm not sure uh, i think they were working on like making it possible to download it locally so you can use it uh, that yeah. was kind of the next step so i guess when i'll check for updates and see if i can experiment with it I'm always a little bit wary with like young packages or yeah, like young programming languages because it's like wasted effort. You never know how much time they will stick around. And if they fail, you wasted like so much time just learning it. Yeah. I, yeah. With some of these tools, you have to be strategic, you know, like, like it's okay if you want to really explore one um or i mean it's okay if you, if you really want to explore a new package sure go ahead maybe you're really interested in this topic but i would always wait a bit to see if we get some traction unless i'm really interested in it yeah okay so what did we say for today uh it was ai monitoring i think yeah ai monitoring yeah, you, you proposed a topic. Uh, maybe you can uh, tell everyone a bit what it's about. Uh, it's I think, in my opinion, AI monitoring is is a huge topic, uh, which includes like many different components. On the one side, it's like, of course, the obvious thing always is like the performance monitoring of the AI model. But it it's like so many different components. For me, it's like also all the logging parts, like what did the model do, input, outputs, logging, and but also the the retraining behind it if i recognize yeah the performance is degrading when do i retrain how do i retrain and stuff like that so it's quite a huge topic and i think it's ignored by most ai developers because most of the time that's then 
another team like more ML ops oriented rather than the AI engineers who are like writing the code, developing the model, training it, and then they're handing it off into the product. And the monitoring is like either it's done by an ent entire differently team or most of the time, in my opinion, it's completely ignored. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I... I mean, monitoring to me, as you say, you can you can break it down into several parts. Like, I think the most intuitive one is just looking at the kind of results that the the model is outputting. Yeah. Let's say you have a, I don't know, you do predictive maintenance on machinery or something like that, and you just monitor if if the I don't know if it's predicting a high like a like likelihood that something is about to break or something like that or if it's just you know a good flow um that's that's kind of the obvious monitoring that yeah. people can do fairly easy but also the like the system metrics like the utilization of the cpus the gpu memory usage and stuff like that to track that and just to ensure that it's like running like optimally like full throttle the gpu all the time and if you don't need it like to shut down the gpus and stuff like that mm. yeah i think i think that that has kind of been like yeah the most intuitive way of monitoring ai just the results and like also the maybe the compute like what what it uses but i think we are all seeing a change right now towards when we retrain these models, we want to monitor like what's the structure of the model, yeah. because you have a, you have a you have a lot of work going into you know like retraining and optimizing the the layers and like making the models more sparse because you don't like most of the neurons might be redundant in a neural network, so you don't want them around anymore. So you might have some dropout or yeah just some like sparsity uh completion being done yeah maybe let's break it down into like what can you what can you models like the different categories of stuff and i think the obvious one everyone is already thinking about is like model performance so if i am i'm thinking like f1 scores accuracy and stuff like that but i'm looking at it over time and just to see where the performance is degrading and then you have or like, increasing or increasing yeah. yeah which also it it can be a good sign or a bad sign if the model suddenly is overfitting to the input data that uh, the performance is actually like despite the metric increasing the performance is degrading yeah and you also need to be careful here with for example information drift i think or concept concept drift uh like that you, you as you progress and you might get different type of input data and you're yeah. using the same test set or something like that this could lead to some like do you need to you know evaluate if the test set is representative uh, it might have you know increased bias after some time or something like that yeah maybe like the distribution drift is another thing i would have mentioned it's like two components in in the input and in the output where you have to monitor it because if you're suddenly predicting something entirely else for a similar input, you see already there is like a, like a weakness in a model. And that's especially relevant for like the edge cases, which are at the edges of the classification boundaries. And where you see, okay, 
usually I would uh, I had like a prediction rate of like 60% positive and 40% negative or something like that. And suddenly I have like 30, 70 or something like that. They really have to monitor like the output distribution. But the second is like what you already mentioned. It's like the input drift. But the input drift, in my opinion, is mostly you can infer it from the model performance. Because if the input drifts most of the time, the performance really degrades. And mm. one good example is, for example, just like the COVID pandemic, which completely changed the the consumer behavior. So if I'm thinking like e-commerce data, which I'm analyzing, suddenly everyone is buying online. And for like every algorithm, this would me- mean like completely different input data than before. But this can do you, also do, do you know what uh, like how the you know the e-commerce actors handled this like when everyone was just like from in the matter of weeks just changed their behavior and uh, was it uh, I mean there must have been a lot of bottlenecks here for them to kind of conquer so a bit of a tangent but yeah. A few weeks ago, I built a model to predict. It wasn't e-commerce specifically, but it was similar consumer behavior for um, predicting the the number of visitors in different cities um, in in tourism. And for that, I broke down the the model into different components. So I have like a general trend component. I have a general like seasons component, which are more like more like short-term fluctuation like quarter yearly half yearly and stuff like that but i also had like a it's called a growth component which is only based on the path growth rates and if you break a model down into like the different components you can make it pretty robust to short-term fluctuations like for example covid because you're only looking at the growth rate in the past two months for example or past two weeks and then you can the model adjusts quickly based on the past growth rates. Mm. But I don't think most most companies build like such complex models, especially for like forecasting and predictions. And it, it, it would have to be like completely retrained or you set up a new architecture. Okay. And that's yeah. that's actually like the the instantaneous drift, I think it's like or like instantaneous drift is like an example for like COVID. It happens instantly. The customer behavior changes in a matter of weeks or like days even. I think that's not the most dangerous part because you can see that in your data. I think like more dangerous is like a gradual drift where customer behavior is changing like slowly over time. And also the moral performance gets a little bit worse, a little bit worse, and a little bit worse. Yeah, so when when we are talking now about kind of metric performance, like in a what you would normally talk about in the AI sphere is uh, for the, the most two basic tasks are classification and um, uh, regression. regression. Yeah. And then you have, yeah, if you want to have a simple prediction of what animal this is uh, in some picture or something like that, then you would maybe use accuracy, like how accurate is your model at predicting what um, animal is in there. So that's very intuitive and also regression, the kind of um, estimating a value, like a continuous value based on some input. So for example, what is the age of your customer here, let's say, uh, based on the their behavior online, something yeah. like that. 
Yeah, so, th- like- so these so these are very in kind of intuitive scores that you can yeah. that you monitor for any type of project. I think uh, this is very acknowledged and kind of un- understood within uh, the community. But uh, I think the more interesting scores is what you were touching upon is also the compute. Um, and maybe you want to speak to this a bit. Is that a compute, for example, especially like we are going like away from the standard like regression and classification and more into like the deep learning part where you really have to to monitor how utilized is your hardware so and that can be cpus and gpus but especially if you're using large models like for example the large language models um i'm i'm training at the moment you really have to watch out that you're using all of your hardware like on the maximum because you really want to optimize the resources and you don't really want wasted space. And that's like a a component, especially for inference, which is a little bit challenging because it depends on do, are you batching your inputs? Are you doing online processing where it's like really real time and you're instantly, but you always have to have a GPU online that is available once the inference is needed and it's like many different components and depending on how you're processing the data you have to decide okay for for online processing it's more important that i have something available in case i need it because you have to do the inference fast for if i'm doing batch processing i can be a little bit more flexible i can wait for example this is often done for example in the night when the resources are just much more cheaper I'm batching the inputs I'm getting, and then I'm doing all the inference in the night, and then I can really optimize the GPU usage. Okay, so I think this is commonly referred to like as, uh, yeah, batch processing as you were talking about, but also stream processing or online processing when you want, you have uh, continuous input data that you need to process. Let's say you have an autonomous vehicle and you're having video data coming in, you want to process it on the edge and yeah. it has to steer or something like that that would be uh, online processing yeah. here yeah um yeah so uh, but in in your um like according to you you would try to maximize the utilization of cpus gpus or whatever um compute device you have if i have the flexibility to do so yes and why is that why why wouldn't you run something on 50% because it's just wasted resources. So it, this is in the case that I need multiple GPUs. If I only ha- need one GPU to do all the inference, I don't really have the flexible the flexibility to, to optimize it that much because if they, if this is all in the case that I'm buying the entire GPU. Nowadays in cloud providers, you just can take the resources you have, but you have to set it up properly. Most, I think, like many different companies, like the one I'm working on for at the moment as well, you're taking mostly the entire GPU. If you have to train uh, like on specific server that are in-house for like privacy reasons and stuff like that, you're also training mostly on the entire GPU. And if I have like multiple GPUs, I don't want to have like the inference from one thing running on the one at like 50% of the memory usage and another one running on the other TPU for 50% of the memory usage because I'm just taking up space. I want to use like one GPU on full throttle rather than multiple 
on like one third or one half of capacity. Yeah. So so less less devices, but running uh, running with kind of on yeah full speed uh, rather yeah. than uh, more and just half assing it yeah. basically. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you could maybe terms. like one could maybe make the analogy of you know um, like finance and money and stuff like that that you rather want to use your money to let's say <laughs> invest and like let it work for you or something like that rather than just laying around but um, maybe maybe this is a bad analogy this is no financial advice but uh, <laughs> it's it's not the best analogy for like in, in like five yeah maybe not yeah people can um choose to do whatever with what i just but said it's getting like better and better i think in gpu usage especially like oh, yeah. the company Ikan is working for where you have uh, like run ai where you have virtual gpus but it gets much easier to like divvy up the resources of a gpu and ensure that the usage you get from the GPU is properly and someone else can easily take the resources you're not taking up. But yeah, mm. that's like, okay, we, I think we have now three key like categories. I think it was like the performance, then like the data monitoring and the distributions, which are shifting for like output and input, and then like the hardware metrics, like how much are you utilizing it? But for me, there's like one more, which is like, what I'm working with at the moment in recommendation systems, so it's like proxy metrics, which I'm tracking. Okay. Um, so in um, proxy metrics is basically like just domain, really domain specific, depends on the algorithm and the use case in the end, which you want to track. So I'm at the moment building, a, that's what also the tourism data was for, a recommendation system, which recommends like alternate travel, uh, travel plans where to go to based on overcrowdedness of the different cities that you go somewhere else, which is still similar. And the goal of recommendation systems is always to give like a personalized response. And mm -hmm. uh, this is something we are, we are actively tracking, for example, okay, how much of our recommendation, because most of the time you have multiple algorithms, which, which are running in parallel, which are recommending different options. And um, not all of them have to be like really personalized based on the user data. And we are, for example, tracking, okay, how personalized is the response? But also we are checking like how diverse are the different options we are giving our users? Because if you're like, for example, you're considering traveling to Stockholm and as options, I give you like uh, five different cities in Sweden, mm isn't really that diverse of a response so you can consider different alternatives okay that's interesting so what is what like for personalization yeah how do you measure that like what are good personalized recommendations so in personalization for example one challenge is if you don't have like that much user data you don't have that much options to really give that good of a personalized response because they just don't have any data on you and that you're tracking that more on a system level and then you're mostly giving top options 
that's the, always the best default choice. Like, Top uh, general that everyone kind of yeah, likes. And, yeah. yeah, that everyone likes. Like in Netflix, for example, the most popular movies are the best recommendations for new users. <laughs> and your goal on a system level is that the personalization increases over time as you gain more and more data on the specific user. And um, this mostly tracked like how many of the recommendations are coming from the real recommendation algorithms. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I can see. I can see that for many services like YouTube, for example, when I watch a video and all, yeah. all of a sudden I get recommendations for um, this artist or this um, football club or something like that. Um, yeah fairly soon afterwards i think they're trying to exploit kind of what goes on immediately after i watch something but uh, yeah that's but personalization is definitely an interesting topic and i think um, we'll see more and more of that in any of our tools and services that we will use that include ai yeah and it i think you can reframe like most problems in ai machine learning as a recommendation problem maybe yeah maybe you're right i haven't given it much of a thought but yeah you might be right but um yeah so uh what yeah but you said this is kind of like the fourth uh, point that you would like to but i feel like we were also hovering around this model monitoring so like looking at the model itself i saw this work from i think there's a physics professor at mit um he's swedish but he's called max tegmark um and he had he was publishing one thing where they were i would say sparsifying the neural networks just to like make yeah. use of the most interesting part in this model so a yeah. yeah a neural network is supposed to kind of replicate what a human brain more or less looks like inside like you have neurons and you have connection between the neurons uh, to process data and they are really focusing in on like what are the like having run it several iterations they are focusing on okay what are the important neurons and how can we tweak it each iteration to 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 make it more sparse and use uh, like um, in, then in return you would use less energy you you it goes faster to process and stuff like yeah. that so i think i think this model uh, monitoring is very important too yeah like complexity of the model the speed of inference of the model like on an average terms yeah that's relevant as well uh, that's especially interesting, like in my space. I always bring it back to my space. It's like in the uh, <laughs> in of models, one of the biggest issues at the moment is they are so large, they take so long for the responses that they can't really be used in a production setting properly. And they're like a bunch of stuff. I'm not sure what they used in or the Swedish professor used, like quantization for one, then like dropouts and just to make the model more sparse using um like restrictions on the on the weights so for example like quantization is an extreme case but also reducing it um to to 
smaller numbers that you don't have so many um so so many numbers floating points yeah. so many floating points yeah and stuff like that which becomes really relevant but that's for me i'm not sure that's really in in like it's it's different that's like for me really model optimization i'm not sure whether i would place it into like the monitoring part yeah i think i think, I think uh, you know we see a lot of work in explainable ai these days and yeah. transparency and uh, i i think a lot of um, institutions and like companies will have to focus on this just to make it uh, readable for anyone more or less um one example that i like to bring up is um, our decision trees uh, when you like you can think of it as a family tree but upside down so <laughs> you are kind of at the top and then you have your parents and then their parents but it goes like yeah. the other way so at the top you find the most informative splitting point in the data yeah. so you have a customer based and the first thing you the first split would maybe be male and female for example that's that's a great way to monitor okay what is actually the the most informative feature that we are looking for in the data it might be that but it could also be like teenager or non-teenager um yeah so i think um yeah tree-based models are quite good for those things but we also see a lot yeah. of work in feature importance in uh, for neural networks too yeah that's a, like that's an interesting point like even tracking what what is relevant it's it's challenging if you're going back to like neural networks to track because you don't know what features are really relevant and but the there are like chumps in that space as well but you just like for example um one one technique is for example feature importance um where you take one feature and just like alter its value up and down for like one specific observation and that's uh could be applied in my opinion to neural networks as well but you just uh you take one point input point and just fix everything but one uh, one specific input and just alter it up and down or you take like a group of points if you have a picture like just alter the values and see whatever pops up and then you mm -hmm. can like really try to figure out yeah what what is this specific point this specific feature contributing so if you add a bit of noise to a certain feature like you know alter the values a yeah. bit how much does it impact the output you could yeah. say like okay yeah. uh, if i give the person a bit different age maybe i will get totally different recommendations you know or maybe if i alter how long time they spend online uh, it won't change so much let's say yeah, and that's also an option, for example, in if you're going to images, where it would be more complex, but you could try to remove certain components from the image or remove the entire background, um, which also gives the possibility to give, make the model way robuster. Because a bunch of the challenges in, in image recognition was always that, for example, if you implement an algorithm to differentiate between polar bears and like brown bears um you expect like one of the main features would be the the color of their pelts yeah of, of their, the fur of the fur yeah and the the algorithms often use the background whether there was snow or whether there was like a forest 
Yeah, because that might take up ninety percent of the picture or something yeah, like that. As opposed to the to the fur or the discriminating features of the bears themselves. And this yeah. you could control with techno uh, techniques like that, where you just remove the entire background and just have the bear, or you have different variations of backgrounds by altering them uh, to make the model a little bit more robust, but also to recognize which feature is the model actually using. Yeah, no, it's um, it's definitely an interesting area, and I, I like doing some work for it, uh, or like especially now with transparency. Uh, but we have, uh, I, I know some people who are really interested in like explainable AI, and I think it's a good time to be working on that uh, as we see regulations coming, and you know you want to make it available for everyone to kind of understand what goes on behind the curtains or the scene. Um, yeah, so summarized i think we talked um yeah we talked about the information or concept drift yeah and um now i forgot about it but model also the the performance metrics the normal performance metrics such as accuracy and the regression error and also the compute and then you had proxy measurements proxy metrics yeah for the domain specific um, or use case specific metrics, how well the model is actually performing. Yeah. So there's a lot one can monitor and it's good to kind of have a hint of how one can monitor all of these, but it's, uh, still usually that you need several different tools and you need, uh, um, it's difficult to just spin up in real time and monitor all of these values. Yeah. But it's. Uh, I hope. Hopefully, it will just be easier and become an integral part of any type of modeling. And I think uh, this will help a lot of people. Yeah, there are like a bunch of tools being developed. If I had to prioritize one, uh, it's like I think model performance monitoring. Just it's it's pretty much solved. That's pretty easy. Um, if I have to prioritize one of the other ones, I would probably go with uh, like input output monitoring to really track the distribution shifts. Mm. I would, I would also, yeah, that's an important one. I would also uh, try to promote the thinking about like how the model actually looks, um, yeah, and the model monitoring, but also keeping an eye on your hardware uh, measurements or like the the devices that you use, making sure that they are used um, to max and. Um, um, yeah, see what you can do with that. If you can get better with it. Yeah. Okay. Let's uh, let's go into the repeating into the five questions. The repeating um, uh, section. I've, uh, I've been I've been nervous for them because you you were <laughs> hyping hyping me up so much about it. Okay. Maybe a first one. I, I want to include one which sticks to topic. Um, how would you try to incorporate AI monitoring into federated learning when we are training on the different devices? Okay, so for so for people that don't know, uh, my uh, I'm currently doing my PhD in federated learning, uh, which is a sort of distributed machine learning, and it is privacy aware, which means that from the edge nodes you don't send raw data, you just send model updates that are anonymous in a way. Um, but how I would monitor it is. Um, as we've been speaking about, we've been talking a lot about personalization. So I would try to see what is the performance at the global server 
kind of, and what is the performance on the clients, uh, the edge nodes, and try to come up with ways so that I can um, make the models better on the edge devices. So try to use personalization out there and see what is the difference currently between the global server and the clients. That's how I would, yeah. that's what I would mainly focus on. Yeah. Okay. Maybe let's go even deeper into like your research. If you have, if you had unlimited resources for one and access to any data, what research project would you try? I would try to do really good electric vehicle range prediction because there's so little data out there. Yeah. And uh, I would, uh, there, there are a bunch of car companies that keep it in-house for obvious reasons, but still the, I, I would focus on the explainability here and let's say like, why exactly does my electric vehicle tell me in the beginning of the trip that I have 500 kilometer range and it lasts for 320. Yeah. Nice. I thought you would be more stumped. Um, maybe. Yeah, I, I was a bit, but I, I yeah. Well. Um, even deeper. If you, if you would have to narrow federated learning into one key component, which is the most important one, which one would it be? The key component here is that you are transferring, um, you are transferring anonymous model updates and not the raw data itself. And this, uh, it still gives the same performance as if you would transfer raw data to a central server, but with less communication and um, more privacy aware. Nice. Okay. Because that's one question I'm actually really curious about the, because I really, I seldomly hear or see federated learning really applied anywhere. Uh, what are the, like one or two key challenges for us to see like federated learning really used in practice? Yeah. So I, I've been thinking about like, what are the, uh, what are the areas that could be impacted by this. Um, so first, I think there has been a lack of frameworks that you can easily use in production uh, for a long time now. Like we, we are starting to see some that are two, two years old or something like that, but it's also like, where do you apply it? It is, it's very difficult to use in, for example, the automotive industry, because you need to have hardware that, you know, can run these with these models on the, like on the edge. And also they should have good connectivity so they can send the updates, but at the same time, you need labeling on the edge, which is really difficult problem because let's say you have an image recognition model running on the edge and you encounter a new object, you can't just ask the driver to say, Hey, what was that object and show it on a display or something like that. And they have to type in like what that object was, let's say like yeah. that, that, that doesn't work practically. So 
I think the first the first ones that will use it a lot in industry will be medical. You have medical data uh, on in hospitals, let's say, where you can use like the summarized forms by doctors or nurses, something like that, that say exactly what went on. And then you would train a model to, let's say, recognize cancer data or something like that, cancer um, occurrences. Uh, then you will probably have it in production where you have a lot of devices that are kind of connected together in a, let's say, production line uh, or for different supply chains like you have uh, in uh, yeah, automotive, you have someone producing this and someone producing this and then in the end it's a car, but they are different entities so you might not want to share the data in between. Uh, you just want to share your knowledge um, for how to, let's say, construct this vehicle, and then you would just share the model updates and not the raw data itself. Yeah, uh, and then you ha then you have finance because finance is very you know it's exposed to privacy. You don't want, for example, everyone to have your credit score or your uh, information about loans and stuff like that. But maybe the financial institution and banks could benefit from collaboratively training a model for let's say fraud or something like that uh, but not using your raw sensitive account data or something like that yeah my opinion is i think the the first industry where it will be really applied to will be actually in, really in producing industries you nowadays have so many different sensors um, used uh, on the production lines, for example, to monitor ma the machines, but the c companies won't be willing to share that with like their competitors and stuff like that. I think this will be the first application because it's they already have like all the hardware, they have good internet connection, it's solid, it's all set up. And I think, especially in healthcare, it's disturbing how bad the situation is is with all the hardware and software in, in hospitals, especially. But that's why you need these frameworks and we have kind of been missing them, but you know, now there are some really good ones out there like uh, Fate, there's Flower, super easy to use. There is, Nvidia is coming with their own, which I think will be used mainly in production uh, to begin with. But yeah, the uh, when they make these easier to use and integrate, it will become widespread within um yeah I, I hope it will become widespread quite quickly okay last one um do you think that in the future ai systems will be recognized as original creators and have their own ip yes I do. I I do think so. It's uh, I. I I think AIs and robots one day will become uh, entities that we will have to live with, and um, I. I don't think it's a good way to oppress oppress them. I, I personally think that we will need to have to figure out the alignment problem, uh, to align them with our uh, goals and objectives, but they themselves will become entities like us. And then I think you are kind of taking away their freedom if you don't 
let them produce and be creative. So um, I, I do, I do think so, but I might be wrong depending on how the development goes. Yeah. I would love to argue on that, but we will, let's stop it. Here <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. A, <laughs> a yeah. discussion. <laughs> we can take this uh, another time.